Today's episode is sponsored by The Venture Project. The Venture Project is an affordable Art Deco-inspired co-working space that offers shared office space, a professional recording studio, professional events, and expert mentorship in downtown Oshkosh. Go to theventureprojectoshkosh.com to learn more. On to the show. I'm David Kelso, and you're listening to APC Presents, where I showcase independent podcasters from Northeast Wisconsin. This week, we get to hear Aaron take on his usual role as host with the latest from the Triple W feed. On this episode, he interviews a former firefighter bringing the fight against PTSD for first responders. I'm pleased to present episode 138, Nick Wingo Overcoming Adversity and PTSD from Winners, Wallets, and Worldviews. Welcome to Winners, Wallets, and Worldviews. I'm your host, AJ Armstrong. You can follow me on Instagram at AaronArmstrong33. That's AaronArmstrong33 on Instagram. Today's guest, we had Nick Wingo on the show. Now, Nick is joining us from Colorado. He actually brings a really unique perspective and has a hell of a story. So Nick was a firefighter and got caught up in some really horrific types of events. And it started to lead into PTSD for firefighters, which is really unheard of in the firefighting community. We always think of it as a warfighter type of uh, mental illness when in reality it affects a lot of people all over. And Nick is pioneering a new effort to lead that charge of how we can help deal with this issue. But in addition to that, we had a great conversation today about Nick's entire story and what he does consistently to deal with his PTSD, but also strategies he's learned that he can share with other people and just some fantastic personal growth and development tools that that are right there at his fingertips. Really a hell of a guy, super inspirational and really exciting to listen to. So I really think you guys will enjoy today's episode. So without any further ado, welcome to the show. Welcome to Winners, Wallets, and Worldviews, the only show that's going to teach you how to be somebody. Where in your life did you learn that you're not good enough? And how do you take what you're most passionate about and what you're most fearful of and what is the plan to overcome that fear and what is the plan to impact that passion? So where are you coming to us out of right now? I am in Denver, Colorado right now. Denver, man. Okay. Mile High City. But Mile High City. We were just there. Last time I was in Denver, this guy at the hotel just was chewing my ass because I walked in like three steps without wearing my mask and I was like putting it on. And this guy at the front desk was just chewing my ass. And I was like, dude, I mean, it's been like three steps or whatever. And you're the guy at the front desk of the hotel. You're not supposed to... You're supposed to be like kissing my ass, and here you are. Yeah, my ass. <laughs> that was, that was, that was my last experience in Denver. It sticks out really well to me. The uh, the mask thing in Denver was pretty was pretty strict. Like people were pretty, they were sticklers about it. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, we're in Wisconsin. It's just rural America. People right. don't follow rules up here. They don't care. <laughs> it's just they're doing their own damn. It's like the Wild West, man. So that was weird. Well, cool. Denver, Mile High City. So I think it would be cool to talk about how we met because. You and I met when we were just at the e-commerce, the official name, Minneapolis e-commerce conference, I think. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. You were there and you were selling your book, Building Grit. And we got to discussion because I was talking to some people afterwards and your friend Kyle points you out and talks about how you're a former firefighter and you ended up kind of with discovering this PTSD that happens with firefighters. It happened to you. 
and you went and you wrote this book and you shared this story and you just went convention to convention selling this thing. And that was really cool. So like we got a chance to connect and talk. And I was like, you got to come on the podcast and tell your story. So I was like, tee this up, man. Tell me your story, brother. Like, where did it start for you? Yeah, man. Well, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. When I was getting out of high school, I had this big dream that I was going to go play college ball and that got destroyed. I just could not seem to figure out the whole football thing. I had a really bad football coach, didn't like me. And so he benched me because of my attitude. Young man with attitude, surprise, surprise. <laughs> but it ruined my chance of getting any type of scholarship to play college ball. And so I came out of high school not knowing what in the world I was going to do with my life. And my mom, surprisingly enough, she uh, handed me this little book I made when I was in kindergarten. It was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I wanted to be a firefighter. And so she was like, you should go check out this firefighter thing. And so I went to community college. I got my firefighter one certificate at a community college. And then I shortly after that got hired as a resident firefighter in a mountain department in Colorado. It was in Keystone and it was called Snake River Fire Protection. I was living at the firehouse and working at the firehouse. And then I had like a part-time job. So my residency covered my housing in the mountains, which was cool because I was able to like snowboard because I lived literally right across from <laughs> Keystone Mountain, which was super cool. It was a really cool time in my life. But when I stepped into becoming a firefighter, I thought like, oh man, it's this great job. It's a hero's job. It's the women want to be with you. The men want to be you. It's like this, <laughs> thing, it's this thing that everybody's like, oh, firefighters. Even now, I'm sure you hear firefighter. I mean, the things that come to your mind. It's like, it's a man's profession, you know, like a kick-ass. This is where the players play. You always For think sure. that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what people think. They think it's this awesome job. And it is for the most part. But the problem is, is that when I came in, Mental health was not at the forefront of anything. And so I remember vividly really early in my career, it was, I was, you know, I was probably, I had been working maybe six or seven weeks on the fire engine in Keystone. And we went on this call and it was this dead kid, this little baby had died. And I remember being disturbed, like, man, I, I didn't really realize I'm this 18 year old kid, not even a man. I don't even have full frontal lobe development yet. I mean, you don't have full frontal lobe development until you're 26 is what they say on average. So I really don't know how to process that type of stuff, right? It's just like why veterans go to war and they come back with post-traumatic stress because they don't have full frontal lobe development and their brains can't understand what they're seeing. They can't understand the depth. They can't understand what it is that they're looking at. And so I didn't understand it. And I remember vividly getting back in the engine and the officer goes, well, that sucked. And I was like, yeah, that, that did suck. And he goes, you better gear up because... You're going to see a lot more of that in your career and you better just push it down because you don't want to show emotion because it's what will destroy you. And so this is the first call that I've had like a bad call that I'm told to take my emotions and shove them down and shove them down. Right. So I'm like, man, and it just felt wrong. But I was like, well, if this is part of it, you know, I guess it's just part of the job. It's part of what we do. It just is what it is. And so over the years, it started to build and build and build. And then I started losing coworkers. So now I have all this crazy death that I'm witnessing as a firefighter. And I'm starting to lose friends, suicide, cancer, brain tumors, wild accidents. And so I had total have lost 10 friends from the fire service now with my career. And I had no clue. I had no clue that that's what went on when you were a firefighter. And so fast forward to, I had moved to a city department because I thought, oh, I want, if I get to the city, it'll be a better experience for me. I won't have all this stuff going on. Well, that was so far from the truth. It just made things worse because I became a medic. 
And so as the medic, I had a lot more responsibility because I was in control of the call. So I was the guy that would walk into the scene and I'm the one making the decisions now. So we have somebody who's laying on the ground. Like I have to make quickly decide what we're going to do with this person, how we're going to handle the situation and how we're going to go about what we're doing. You know, and sometimes I had to make the call of like, I vividly remember the first time I was a medic, the first call I was by myself. There was no other medic. So usually you have two medics on a call when you go on, that's the standard, but sometimes people are on vacation or whatever. I remember walking on this call and it was this 20 year old girl and she'd been laying there for probably eight hours. She was gone. She was gone, gone. Like she had dependent lividity and rigor mortis was just signs of sitting there for quite some time. But I remember deciding not to do CPR, not to work this girl. Right. And it was the right decision because there was no chance that we were bringing her back. But when I left and I went home, I remember having like this feeling of guilt of not doing anything for that young woman because come to find out she had just started using heroin and nobody knew about it. And she overdosed on heroin and killed herself. Beautiful young lady had so much more potential left in her life. And I remember just going home and crying, like just being devastated that I didn't do anything for that girl. It was the right decision, but it was a hard decision. And it was something that weighed on me. And now you take that and you times that times thousands of times of death, dead kids, murders, suicides, teenage suicides, abuse to kids that led to death, you know, all this crazy crap. It just started wearing on me. And so about five years ago, I started having sleep issues. So I was sleeping maybe two hours a night and I was starting to have nightmares, flashbacks, like outbursts of anger, all these things that I didn't understand what was wrong with me. And I didn't really even think anything of it, just part of the job, part of the job, because you come up in the fire service, part of the job, part of the job. It is what it is. Shove it down, shove it down. Don't tell anybody about it. Don't talk about it. Because then if you do, what happens is what's happened to me up to this point now. So on September 21st of this last year, I was on the ambulance and I looked at my partner. I was like, dang, man, I'm not sleeping. I'm having nightmares. And he was like, Ooh, that's not good. I'm like, I know it's getting worse. So he said something to the captain and the captain comes in and he's like, Hey dude, like you're done. You need to go get some help. And I'm like, okay. All right. Why? And he's like, well, because you're having sleep issues and nightmares. I'm like, yeah, but it's just part of it. He's like, no, talk to the chief. We need to figure out what's going on. Okay. Whatever, man. So they take me off and I, I don't think anything of it. They drug test me make me blow for alcohol right away. I'm like, screw you guys. The HR lady wants to test me for steroids, like all this shit. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Whatever. Like do whatever you guys need to do. You're the ones that tell me I had to get off it, the ambulance. Right. Well, I went six weeks and I waited for treatment and waited for treatment and nothing. And then my dad died. So October 31st, my dad dies. And I'm like, I am messed up. I have an issue and I just, I can't control myself anymore. So I reach out and I'm like, Hey, look guys, like I need some help. So I'm seeing a counselor like once every two weeks and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. I'm crying every single day. I'm having outbursts of anger. I can't function. Like have you ever been around with somebody who has post-traumatic stress, like yeah. the anxious moving, like anxious so moving, start to cry it's, from like random movies or something like, yeah, yeah just, crazy stuff like that. I kept on having all this more and more crap happen to me, more crap happened to me. I had to kick my in-laws out of my life in January. 
the suicidal ideation started to kick in in December of last year, really, really bad. And they were getting worse. And I was like, man, something doesn't happen. I'm literally going to kill myself. Like I'm losing my mind. I can't take this anymore. I'm just, I'm done. I'm over it. And so I finally go, you know what? I need to go for inpatient treatment. I have been fighting it for quite some time. So I tell my, my doc, like I'm ready to go. And she's like, okay. So all three of the doctors that the city had assigned me are like, okay, this guy needs to go to this treatment facility in Maryland. It's designed for firefighters. It's specific to post-traumatic stress and substance abuse. So it's a duly certified place specifically for firefighters. So it's only firefighters that are at the facility. So we get it all set. City comes and says, no, we're not sending you there. We want you to go to an independent medical examiner. We don't agree with the doctors. So we go to this independent medical examiner. He's totally a freaking bulldog for the city. Denies me going to the facility. Says, yeah, he has post-traumatic stress. Yeah, he needs further treatment. But no, I don't think he should go to that facility in Maryland. There's plenty of other viable options. So city sides with them. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going. Like, I'm going. So you guys just need to know that this is what I'm doing. So I, I paid for it out of my own pocket. I paid for my mental health treatment because I knew that I was going to kill myself if I didn't go. So I went and it was what I needed. I spent 35 days there and I was able to heal myself enough that I can function, but there's things I have to do every single day. And I can't go back to the fire department. I can't fill my trauma bucket anymore because I know what path that takes me to. And I know that's where that's going to make me end up. And so I have a hard boundary there of I can't do death like that anymore. I just can't. Welcome to the podcast, Fast Class Lesson 8 was distribution. In Lesson 9, we're talking about marketing and monetization. Most podcasters starting out don't have a marketing strategy other than word of mouth. How does one get new listeners? First, figure out who you want your listener to actually be, that person who absolutely listens to every single episode. After that, here are a few methods to try getting in people's ears. Be a guest on other related podcasts. Invite guests to your show from related podcasts. Engage with people on Twitter or other forums. Write content for a newsletter related to your content. Sponsor a newsletter related to your show. Buy ads on podcast listening platforms. Marketing is time and money going out. So how do you bring some moolah in? I'm no pro monetizer, but here are some of the standard methods for a podcaster. Ads on your show, affiliate sales, paid subscribers, merchandise, boosting your own personal business. So how would you describe that listener that's going to listen to absolutely every episode of yours? Share with us and watch the slower, more detailed video version of this in the APC members Facebook group. Link in the notes. Back to the show. So when I got back, I had written a few passages while I was at the facility and people were like, man, you're so, the way you talk and the way that you look at things and the way that you present them is so good, but you should write a book. And I'm like, man, I've been thinking about writing a book for like quite some time. And now I have this like huge journey that I can share with this book, right? Well, one of the guys that I was in treatment with about two weeks after I left, he left. And then I started writing the book and then he killed himself seven days after he got home. And so I recognize like the book, it's about more than just me because three to 500 first responders are killing themselves every year and nobody's talking about it. Nobody is putting a light on it. Everybody's just sweeping it under the rug. And the reason being is, is that like for me, when you say something, you end up in a position where your city's fighting you 
They don't believe you that post-traumatic stress. They don't want to pay for things. It's this constant battle. And to be honest with you right now, we're going through and we're going to have to probably put a lawsuit against them because of all the things that they've done that are wrong, just like over the top out of their way to make my stuff so difficult to deal with. They've made it really hard. And so what my goal is, is that by the time I'm done sharing my book, number one, every state in the United States of America should recognize post-traumatic stress as a viable workman's comp related issue for first responders. And that's not the case right now. And that might surprise you. It's not cool. It's not fair. It needs to be fixed. It's a problem. And number two, no firefighter should ever have to pay or first responder for that matter should ever have to pay for their mental health. And so I'm in the process of creating a 501c3 to ensure that if they do have to pay deductibles, that they will not have to pay those deductibles because the average firefighter on the East Coast, probably about thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year. Now you send them to treatment and they're going to have a $5,000 deductible or $8,000 deductible because insurance sucks right now. Yep. So they got something that was not their fault. They're not the ones who had this. They didn't want it. They had no clue it was coming. And now you're going to pop a five to $8,000 bill in their hands with their small job where they're just trying to serve their communities. It's wrong. And it needs to be dealt with and it needs to be fixed. Right. And nobody's willing to stand up and talk about it. I'm that guy. Like, because I, I, I'm the guy where it's like, you can try to push against me, but I will run you over. I promise you, like, do not step in front of me. If you're going to try to stop me from doing the things that are right. I promise you, I am the wrong 235 pound guy to step in front of. (laughs) Right. And I just know that I'm the one that has to be the guy to do this because I fit the part, the bald head, the big red beard, the tattoos, fit guy, like people, like people listen to me. Right. And so I need to use that to help other people get the treatment they need, get the things they need and fix a major problem in the United States of America that nobody's talking about. Just to put this into context for people, think about every person that dies, right? 99% of the time, a first responder is finding that person and looking at that person as dead. That is a human being, a first responder that is looking at that dead person. Think about any person that dies that's not like on their deathbed in a hospital. I mean, those is probably a lot of people. I would argue probably most people. I don't have the stat in front of me, but yeah. So like every time someone dies, which is going to be all of us, it's probably a first responder that's going to see this. That's a person out there that's just witnessing death consistently like that. And they all die in different situations and scenarios, which can cause a lot of trauma to what you're saying. What's interesting to me is that the military recognizes this as such an issue, right? So like, the military has these programs for VA compensation. Actually, you know, when I discharged out of the military, they had such extensive questionnaires to make sure that I was cleared from a mental health standpoint so they could either transition into the correct whatever types of treatment or that they keep you in so that you can get the right treatment before you transition out. You know, all these type, every person who discharges has to go through that. And it blows my mind that, there's not something like that for other public servants and first responders, because you make such a great point. There's this window between 18, 26 years old, where your prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, which is how you can reason and process through things, especially traumas. 
I'm actually curious to hear, do you know more science behind that? That's really interesting. There's not a ton of science behind it. You know, they're doing more and more research on it. It's just the way that we process things. The frontal lobe is where all the processing happens, right? So those things that are the hard things, the trauma, when we get our frontal lobe development, that's when we can actually fully process those traumas. When we don't have that development, we lack the ability just to process things for whatever reason. I'm not sure 100%, but, you know, I'm not a science guy. I'm just, a, I'm a medic. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. I know how to bring people back. I, I know how to do CPR and give people stuff, emergency situations. Like I'm really good at that. But you don't do brain surgery or any of that? Yeah, none of that stuff, you know. <laughs> but I can tell you what's interesting to me. There's two things about trauma that have really intrigued me that I've learned. Number one is the childhood trauma. So the childhood trauma that you have directly correlates with your ability to process trauma as you age. And so because I have a little bit of childhood trauma, not terrible, but some stuff that definitely jaded me and caused me some issues, that trauma directly correlated with my ability to handle the trauma at the age of 18, right? So that key piece is that 18 to 26. What I've noticed is that people who come into the fire service at that older age who were not prior military or that type of stuff, who just came in at that 25, 26, their careers tend to last a lot longer and they're able to process through things a lot easier. They don't have the issues. But the problem is, is when you get the younger guys in where they are in that 18 to 26 range and they just don't have that ability and then you top off childhood trauma and Mm -hmm. it makes it 10 times worse. The other thing I find really interesting is the trauma, you can process it by all kinds of means that I'd never expected. Like for example, when I jump in a shower, it's cold water, period. I do not take hot showers. It is for me, something that grounds me and it makes me be ever present in my moment. So it makes me be right where I am and accept who I am. So I've learned that stuff like that is what helps me to rewire my brain. So the brain can be rewired. It's just a process and it's a journey. It's something that you have to do consistently. Like I have my days every single day are a certain way. Now they might happen in a different order, but there are things that have to be done every day in order for me to deal with that trauma. What are the types of treatments other... So you got these ideas of how to rewire your brain, which I think is applicable for people who are suffering from trauma in general, grief or things like that. But in other ways, right? Where like you're trying to rewire yourself for success principles or to get out of old habits or things or like stagnant ways of thinking that don't work and trying to rewire yourself to work. What have you found helpful as far like other than cold showers and things like that to help with that rewiring and some treatments that you found very beneficial for you that could be relevant to other people? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just go over the ones for me that are huge. Morning routines. So what does my morning routine look like? When I wake up, I read the Bible, one chapter from the Bible to my wife every single day. It gives me gratitude. So that rolls into my gratitude in the morning. makes me feel happy. Mm -hmm. gives me joy. gives me peace in my heart and reminds me who I am as a man. And then we go over things we're grateful for right away before our feet even leave the bed and hit the ground. Those are the things that we do. Then I jump out of bed. I will either go on a walk outside for 45 minutes. I will jump in the sauna. Whichever one happens first, the other will happen after. So sauna and walk outside every day. Even if it's snowing, raining, it doesn't matter. It has to happen. I have to be outside to fill the air and to just feel the freshness and to just be out in nature. It's huge for me. 
because it reminds me who I am and it reminds me that there's this great world out there that I have access to every single day. And so if you're stuck up in your house every day, you're missing out on this great world that we live in. It's such a huge blessing. Like, why are you not outside? Why are you not enjoying that in your life? Because if you would, you would see that God made this huge planet that he gifted us and you're missing out on a huge gift if you do not get outside and just be. It just, it's huge. Then from there, I have got to get some type of workout in. Honestly, sometimes too many times a week is what I do because I'm like a junkie almost sometimes (laughs) because I know that it helps me with my post-traumatic stress. So I yell at my weights. Like I straight up, I get in the gym and I'm like, ah! Like, <laughs> You're that guy. My you kick out of Planet Fitness with that kind of a... Uh... Well, I have my gym <laughs> in my own house because of that reason there. I mean, I, I just know like when I get in the gym, like people, the people are like, what in the world is wrong with that dude? He is crazy. But it's how I get my aggression out because yeah. I have a lot of frustration and anger and I'm bitter and pissed off. Like there's a lot of stuff about this that every day I'm still mad. Yeah. I'm still mad. I'm still mad. I feel robbed of my career. I feel robbed of who I was as a man. I felt like I just had something taken from me that was mine to not be taken. And so it's hard to deal with. It's hard to maneuver through, you know, it's difficult. And so that's what I do in the morning. And then I have to stay busy. Like I have, I own a trailer rental business that's starting to expand. I do mobile IVs. I drive Lyft. I'm pushing my book. I'm doing podcasts. I'm talking to anybody that will listen to me until they're annoyed with me. Like I am out doing anything and everything I can to grow my brand, grow myself as an individual and legitimately help people. Because I know those phone calls that I get that say, Hey, your book is helping me. Hey, thank you. It reminds me that I can still make it through and that there's hope and that everything's going to be okay. Like that stuff for me is what helps to drive me forward. My social media, I hate social media. I hate doing it. (laughs) Not my jam, but I tell you what, I know the power of it and I'm going to leverage it because it's a platform to leverage yourself. Yeah. And so that's what I'm using it for. It's just to literally legitimately just to leverage myself and leverage my book so I can help more people. And then at night, sleep routines. Like, dude, I have created a room that is 21 year old me would be like, what in the world is this shit? It's got a rock wall up the whole wall. It's got a waterfall. We've got hammock chairs that sit in it. We've got a little star generator at night that puts stars on the wall. It's like a total hippie meditation room. But I've learned meditation at night is huge for me. It is so big. Like I had no idea how powerful meditation was. Like legitimately, if I'm having an attack, if I will just sit down and do a 10 to 15 minute meditation, it will completely flip me from my Mm -hmm. mood. And I've learned that as one of my tools that I put in my toolbox that legitimately my son is probably, it saved my son's life probably like a dozen times up to this point because he's driven me over the edge and I'm like, okay, I need to meditate or this child, it's not going to end well. (laughs) Yeah. And then at night, the last thing I do is that cold shower. It has to be right before I go to bed. I have to shower cold. It helps to shut my body down and helps me sleep better. So to sum it up, morning routines, sleep routines, and just keeping myself moving forward. Honestly, of all the guests I've interviewed on morning routines, I think yours is my favorite. I love that idea. First of all, just as another you know believer and Christian, it's good to get stuck in the word right away at the beginning of the day because kind of it just prompts you to position yourself in the world of all things, right? And then this idea of getting out in nature, going for a walk. I always used to tell people who are kind of stressed, 
when you're walking, sometimes you're walking and you're looking down. But if you actually look up, like look at the sky, look around, for whatever reason, it just changes everything. You know, if you look up at the sky, you start to see like more gratitude, like, wow, there's there's clouds up here. There's, you know, the sun's up here. There's there's space beyond this. There's this whole universe outside of just the ground that I'm looking at. And it kind of, once again, takes you out and puts it into context, gives you that bird's eye view of stuff. So these the idea of walking immediately at the beginning of the day is awesome and connecting with nature and breathing in the good garden kingdom, right? And I think that's so wonderful. And then the sauna, I love, I'm a steam room guy myself in the morning. I love the steam room. I'm trying I to get both <laughs> steam room. Yeah. Steam, Either way, steam room game changer, you know, just that idea to like detox and then hit the gym. I think that's one of my favorite pre day routines that I've heard on the show, just because it's simple and it's, I think it's well done. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think everyone should consider that, you know, consider having some kind of, ritual or routine. I've done kind of every kind of routine to where I just, there's no routine anymore. Right. So it's like, I've tried them all. They've all kind of evolved and morphed into one another. And it's been a little different since I've been busier here at the venture project last six months, but it's something that I really appreciate. I think and when you get into one, it totally flips everything upside down from a productivity standpoint, from a personal growth standpoint, and to your point, from a healing standpoint. Absolutely. You know, and there's a key thing that you just said that I think people listening need to really hone into is that it's simple. You're overcomplicating it. You're making it too difficult. You're fighting every excuse, every reason why you can't. And when you do it and you realize how simple it is and how big of a difference it makes, it's mind blowing. It really is. It's crazy to me how simple and how easy it is. Especially the entrepreneurs that are totally independent. They don't have, you know, they're not, this isn't a side hustle. And it's like, now they've got it. They've got to create structure to their day. It's a great way to start with some structure to the day because you got to, Hey, what do I got to do? I got to figure out how I'm going to make money this week. <laughs> and doing something like that, having a routine puts that structure in place. So that's a great one. I like that. I think I'm going to, I'm going to bank that one up. I love the idea of the hot, cold contrast to the cold showers that, you know, Wim Hof kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's I like Wim Hof. That's good stuff. Yeah, that dude's crazy. I think that guy's hilarious. I don't, he's not supposed to be funny, but I think he's hilarious. It's just the way he carries himself is just awesome. Well, anyway, I wanted to to wrap up too and just talk a little bit about your book. I wanted to ask where can people find it and what are they going to learn and what are they going to take away with this? Because I love your mission. I think that if you could get in front of every major city council in the country and tell your story and get some kind of you know movement going where people are trying to make policy for some of their first responders and public servants. Like how do you get out there? How do you do that? So I think I love this mission. Tell me a little bit about the book itself specifically. Building grit, how to fight the fires of PTSD and come out stronger on the other side. Well, number one, if you want to learn about what firefighters go through and how our minds work, at least mine, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I can tell you that it's probably most of the general populace. Number two, it's for any person who has post-traumatic stress whatsoever, because post-traumatic stress is a universal disease. It operates the same way. Like the things in this book can legitimately help anybody who has any type of trauma, because it just helps you to just kind of stop and think about things a little bit differently. Number three, it's for people, first responders who are not willing to say that they have a problem, which was me. I was the first time somebody told me I had post-traumatic stress. I looked at them and flipped them off. Like, no, <laughs> you've lost your mind. And so to help people like me go, Ooh, yeah, maybe I do have that. Ooh, yeah. Maybe I should talk about that more. 
as far as finding the book, you can find it on Amazon, just a simple search in Amazon building grit. And they can find me on Facebook. It's grit wins. And then on my Instagram is at building underscore grit. I'm working on developing a website for a give back right now. That's in the process, but I'll be posting all that on my social media shortly within the next couple of months. Also released in the 501 C three, and that's going to be giving grit. And I'm super, that one I'm really excited about because I really want to make sure that no firefighter ever pays for their mental health again. Yeah. And we do have a lot of veterans that listen to this podcast. A lot of my friends from West Point, they're soldiers. They recommend this podcast to a lot people that are struggling with it in different avenues. So I think anyone that, that knows someone that could require some help with trauma in the past, this would be an excellent opportunity, a great book for them. As you know, someone that was gifted this book, I got it signed, you know, I got it signed from the man right here. <laughs> but but as having like checked out the first, you know, couple pages of the book, it's really phenomenal so far. I'm really excited to finish it too. It's just this podcast came up like right after we just met last week. So that's you know, the way I roll. I just push, give me an opportunity, I'm gonna jump on it, man. That's just who I am as a man. I think everybody should do that, you know, take massive action and roll into it. But a really interesting topic, something that once you hear it, you hear about, you know, first responders, wow, like the they do probably see so much death at such a young age that's going to have some trauma for people and when you say it like that i think everyone gets it they see the issue it's just about saying it enough and getting it out there enough which is why having a podcast like this or a platform where people can share this story and message is only going to help your mission of actually getting some results changed absolutely absolutely and that's the mission the more i talk about it and i talk a lot the more I get it in other people's hands, like the more eyes I get on it, then that's where change will start to happen. Right. Well, Nick, brother, thank you so much for jumping on the show today. You guys are listening to winners, wallets, and worldviews. Winners, people crushing it in life. Wallets, talking about money, personal finance, small business, real estate, investing, and worldviews, talking about the ideas that will make a change in the world, like this one. So thank you so much, everybody. Be somebody. Hey, thanks to Aaron for letting us pull from his feed for this week. Please go follow and review Winners, Wallets, and Worldviews wherever you're currently listening to this. And as a bonus, Aaron let me know that APC Presents listeners can get 50% off a podcast studio rental at The Venture Project. Just check out the link in the notes. We'll take you right to that page and you can reserve that space. We're about halfway through the season, so you should be getting ready to create your own RSS feed for submission. If you're following the podcast Fast Class, head on over to Apple podcast.com for community support resources and the chance to win some free gear if you know someone in northeast wisconsin who wants to start a podcast share the show with them and if you've made it this far please rate and review the show on Podchaser, or you could go hug a first responder and say thank you then don't stop hugging and whisper your review of this podcast in their ear i'm david kelso your neighborly podcast nerd and thanks for listening